1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash
2: upgrade. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars Podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, first recorded for Dan Snow's History Hit, Dan talks with Second World War tank commander Captain David Render. Captain Render was a 19-year-old second lieutenant fresh out of Sandhurst when he was sent to fight in France. And it's hard to imagine, but young, fresh-faced, he was sent to join a veteran armoured unit that had already spent years fighting together with the Desert Rats in North Africa. In this episode, we hear about how David settled into life with the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry five days after the D-Day landings, and how these hardened men didn't think he was going to last very long.
3: David, you don't look old enough. But you are a Normandy veteran, Western Europe veteran, from 1944-45. Correct. What was your job? I was a
4: lieutenant troop leader of 5 Troop A Squadron, Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. That's the Nottinghamshire Yeomanry. How old were you? I was 19 when I was in action against the Germans. I joined the army at 18 on my birthday, and uh, because it was the thing to do sort of thing i did a year and a half it took to train us from being a schoolboy to being well we were a man at 18 of course uh, to the uh, being a lieutenant in able to command a troop of four tanks and what kind of tanks were, were they at that point sherman, sherman fires yeah, yeah. Four, fireflies fours. no we had one firefly later on but immediately we had sherman 75 millimeter, um, of, you know, gun tanks.
3: So you're being sent over to Europe. D Day happens. You land. When do you land?
4: I went over on D two. D D Day, of course, was D Day, but the regiment went on D Day, but I didn't know anything about them. I was just a reinforcement, and I took over 16 Cromwell tanks. Um, and so you we, land two days
3: after D Day. You take over 16 tanks.
4: Yes. To to Normandy,
3: yeah,
4: age eighteen.
3: Yeah, and what's um, that like? Because you've got these grizzled veterans. you t- you know, you're, no, they were,
4: they were, they were. No, those people. We had a skeleton crew. I was a reinforcement, you see, and um, we went over just to sort of hand the tanks and the men over. When we we left on D two, as I said, and then we floated about on D three, on a ship which was rather like a snake going over the waves and we landed at about 4 o'clock on D4 and uh, the first tank, the captain came over and said get these, he used a very old English word actually to tell me to hurry up and um, I said to the first tank, right off you go and he went down the ramp and uh, it went down and down and woof, upside down, complete with the men in it, and disappeared. And we'd obviously, something had gone wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And the captain came over, and he gave the most enormous ticking off to me for doing it. And uh, I stood there, frightened to death, really. We were, in fact, being machine-gunned and, and attacked by Mr. Schmidt 109s at the time, just occasional ones whizzed over. And uh, so it wasn't really a very nice place to be. I'd rather have been at home with mum at that time, I'll tell
3: you. So the first tank, did you lose the crew? Was the crew. Yes, yes,
4: only two, only a skeleton crew. Normally a tank's got five people in it. Um, But we just took, we were a reinforcement, you see.
3: But so that's your your first command in Europe. First thing that happens is is the tank. Lost the
4: tank, yeah, immediately.
3: And what did that do for your confidence? Did you feel awful about that? Or did you have to keep moving, keep making decisions?
4: Well, I mean, I was a bit concerned about it, to put it mildly. And the captain didn't help because he was blaming me for doing it. Well, I hadn't done anything except tell the bloke to get off the ship, you see. Tell the driver to get off the ship. And we went down the ramp and I couldn't understand what had happened. Well, then they pulled the ship back But the point was they put a a sea anchor out with a huge great hawser and they put the thing into reverse. Fortunately, the tide was still coming in. So they just managed to get the ship off the shore. And just as they did it, the hawser broke with a terrific crack and it came back and it sawed all the sort of funnels and rails and things on the other side of the ship, clean off as if it was a knife. We weren't standing on that side. But if, we'd been, if it had come our side, we'd have had it, of course. But the point was that then we came in again and the ramp went down and off we went with the other tanks. Well, 50 years later, I went back and took a photograph of the area of Gold Beach where we landed and um, it would have got the, the tide was out. And if you look at that area where the tide is, uh, uh, the hammer there, you'll find that the sea has a habit of scooping sort of trenches out. And so we're obviously right on the edge of a hole. And the tank went by a bit of bad luck. Instead of going into eight foot of water, it went into 18 foot of water. And that was the start. Well, anyway, we got the other um, uh, the other 15 tanks off and we were up on the on the shore and um the ship of course the on on the, the chap the crew on the ship were very sort of nervous and edgy about the whole thing actually anyway we um i didn't stop to talk to them we went off and then of course the um uh, tanks were taken off me very quickly because you know they were needed to fight and um As far as the men were concerned, they were taken away from me. And the next thing I knew was I was directed to a thing called the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. I'd never heard of the Sherwood Rangers. And I met this fellow, John Semkin, who was the, he was a captain because the regiment landing on uh, D-Day, the colonel was killed. Um, and um, they had various casualties. They lost about 10 tanks getting onto the shore. and um, they, But A Squadron, they were landed dry. They weren't swimming ones, and they went on down to Bayeux, and uh, I joined them at a place called Fontenay, just south of, of Bayeux, uh, on uh d it was actually d probably I went d five and uh, then d six
3: was what was the bridgehead like at that point? I mean was it just packed with men and and vehicles and tanks and aircraft overhead? was it overwhelming
4: well uh, you have to remember essentially one thing about all this, and that is that you're only talking to a peanut i mean I've certainly a little tiny speck, wasn't I I was a lonely second lieutenant a mere nothing and the fact is that we only had our own little bit of the area to look at and see i mean we didn't know what was going on i mean i didn't even know d-day was going on don't forget when i got on the boat the ship to take the tanks over i said to the chap well i was supposed to just put them on the put the tanks on and anchor them down and i thought i had to get off and go and get some more more tanks and the chap said, get off. He said, you better look through the porthole. When I looked through the porthole, we were at sea. And I said, well, where are we going? They said, well, France, of course. Well, that was my invasion of France. I mean, I know you've got to have secrecy in the, in war, haven't you? Essentially, you mustn't tell the other bloke what's happening. And so in the circumstances, that was secrecy gone bombing, wasn't it? Because I had no idea. And, um, and, and we just went to France. And that was it. That's how it went.
3: And then you joined a unit that you'd I never, never joined before. I'd
4: never even heard of. And then the next thing was, of course, that the squadron the squadron leader placed me as a troop leader under instruction from a chap called Neville Fern. He was a lieutenant who'd been with them for some time, and uh, he had to go and do something else. So on D, that I, I did D, one day under instruction. You know, you hear about the fighter pilots having only twenty-five hours flying and all that. I had one day under instruction, and the next day I was in charge of the troop. I was in command of, of three tanks. We had first in, of all in battle. Well, yeah, I mean, but yeah, but we actually fought. We did some shooting on D six the day I was under instruction. The first day. And then, I mean, it was... Um, yeah, but uh, there's nothing very clever about it.
3: I mean, it just sort of happens, doesn't it? You know, you're there doing it. Well, I, I think it sounds pretty clever to me. So you're leading three tanks. Did did you worry that they wouldn't respect you because you just, just turned up or, or...?
4: That was a terrible thing, if you really want the truth. The men I was with, it was a first-rate, front-line, well-known tank regiment, one of the best. If you read the history, people like General Horrocks says that the Sherwood Rangers were, you know, one of the top regiments. And the fact of the matter was that these chaps that I was in command of, they, so the sergeant, for instance, was totally hostile to me. He was 40 years old. He'd got a wife and kids at home. He'd had enough in the desert, but he'd done the landing on D-Day. And to be honest with you, a whippersnapper of 14, of 19 years of age, coming in, uh, telling him what to do, wasn't on. And um, the fact was that he resented me completely, as did the men in the tank. For instance, the first thing we were taught to do as a lieutenant or a tank commander was to have the sights T and aid test and adjusted, that means that what you have to do is you take the firing pin out of the main armament main gun it's about that long, I'm about as, as thick as my wrist or just no fin about my thumb like that. and you look up you, you go around the front of the gun and if you look at a big gun, you'll see um, there are marks on it on the end of the barrel. What you do is you get a bit of grease and a bit of grass and make a cross-tease on the end of the barrel. You then go back and you aim the gun up until you see uh, what you've probably read off the map, a church spire if there's one around, or something anyway, um, a a target, whatever it is, 500 yards. So you set it at that. Then you go to the sights, which are next door to that, and you adjust those so that you adjust the sight at 500 yards on the sight and lock it, you see, and lock them both. And then when you put a round up the spout, it fires. So I said to these gunner, my gunner, this new chap I was with, uh, on D7, if you like, when I was in charge, um, uh, have you tna your sights? And he said, uh, "What's he going could do with you? So I said, everything. And I want to know, have you done it? So he said, no, I haven't, and there's no need to either. This is a trooper talking to a lieutenant. So, mind you, he was much older than me. And so I said, well, I want you to TNA He said, they're all right. There's no need to do it. I said, I want you to do them. He uh, he just wouldn't answer. So I said, okay, I'll do it myself. So I knew exactly what to do, so I did. But I'm not telling a lie. The gun was aiming there, and the sights were aiming there. They no more would have shot a tank than jump off the moon. So I put him straight, and I said to him, now I'm telling you, that's the last time you pull that one on me. You see. Time will tell. Oh, grumble, grumble, Well, the long and the short of it was, I had to fight two enemies. One was my own men, and the other one were the Germans. And the question is, my own men had to be dealt with first, so how do you deal with them? I decided that I was going to show them I wasn't afraid because they were afraid. They'd seen a tank hit with their friends in it, glowing red sparks coming out and their men, their friends are in there. And you see that once or twice. I'll tell you what, you're not too keen about getting in a tank again. Nobody in the regiment, by the way, that I ever heard of um, Uh, uh, There might have been one, but uh, 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 refused to get back in after the tank had been blown up. All our men always went straight back in, and so did we, because I came out of three altogether. But the fact of the matter is that um, it was a matter of how was I going to gain their confidence. So what I did was I said, I will lead. Well, leading was the most dangerous thing because the first thing that gets hit is the lead tank. But I led my troop all the time, right the way through. And after a bit, they said, this bloke's all right. And they wanted to be in my crew. The people wanted to be in my troop. And we also had another big, big asset. And that was in the shape of our squadron leader, who when i joined was only a captain because the major the the colonel of the regiment had been killed when he was having what they call an order group with the infantry deciding where we were going what we were going to do the next day and a shell came down and killed a lot of well, four or five of them and uh, the, the colonel therefore had to be replaced well the second in command didn't want to do it of the regiment and so they took the next senior Major who was a chap called Stanley Christopherson. And Stanley Christopherson said, ha ha, he was always laughing. He always made, we all tried to make fun of the whole thing. And I'll explain another point about that in a minute. But the point was that he was always laughing and wanted us to laugh as well. And we did, as young blokes. And we got up to various antics, some of which I'll tell you about. But in principle, he uh, commanded the, the regiment, um, and so we hadn't. Uh, we got a major in charge of the regiment. That's a colonel's job. So they had to promote him, and then John Semkin, who was the second in command of A Squadron, he as a captain. He was a captain when I joined them, and then he became a major. So the regiment was in a complete turmoil
3: when I joined it, and that's before you have to deal with the Germans. What was the first? German vehicle or infantryman that you saw uh, a tiger a tiger,
4: yeah, I would say so
3: what happened there? close was it was well it, we were
4: t- it was just the other side of a hedge going down and um, uh, uh, where we were uh well it just passed us, and then with the somebody else caught it up later on. you see one of the other problems was the, 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 you realized there were only one hundred and sixty seven tigers in Normandy of which, incidentally, only three got back to Germany, so we did a bit of good, didn't we? But most of them were either Mark IVs or Panthers. And the Panther and the Tiger were totally inviolate against us. Our gun would no more, if you tried to shoot at them... I mean, I've... Actually, what sort of distance are we talking about? About twice the distance from you see your bookcase down there. Well, twice that distance, roughly, of this building. I mean, I've actually shot at a German Panther and, and it's just gone straight off, you know. That's
3: only that's less than 100 meters. I mean, that's, oh, yeah,
4: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes they would be very close to us, you see. Well, I was talking to you about uh, I'm jumping ahead here a bit here, but but um. There was an occasion, for instance, when we were very close to the Germans, and um, the thing was that uh, suddenly over the air came this voice. Our, their radio linked in onto our onto our net, you see, and this bloke calls out, this German calls out, "You English Finland we are coming to get you!" and so you know, larking about. I called down the thing. I said, oh, good. If you're coming over, will you hurry up? Because I've got the kettle on. And the bloke on the end goes, he got in a great rage about that. you Because they could speak perfect English. And we took the mickey on things like that. We had, for instance... We never wore a tin hat we always wore berries we didn't have body armor or anything like that just as we saw sort of, with your head out the top of the tank that's why we had so many casualties don't forget the job i was doing the crew commander i was average life was a fortnight that's all they gave you as a as a lieutenant and um this is probably a point about that medal that you see there what about all those chaps who were killed And they didn't get a medal at all because they were dead. You only get that if you're alive. And uh, I can't help thinking about that because you have to realize that as troop leaders, particularly, we used to help one another. If you were another troop leader, you see, I mean, you would not hesitate to help me out if I was in trouble in the same way that I did with you. Unfortunately, one of my friends, he did just that and he was talking on the air and suddenly he stopped talking and he dropped his sing gun and it went off on its own and he just shot up a huge big tank, an uh, uh, anti-tank gun. The Germans had an 88, which was firing at me at Nijmegen. It had got 20 men around it and they were loading it up and firing at me. I, I would have been a dead duck. I mean, I, it hit me and I was blinded anyway for about. 20 minutes or something like that and then i found i could see so it was all right but uh it was very very dicey and he came along and shot through the trees and shot it up and stopped it and as he's telling me what he's done because i didn't realize why it had stopped you see and uh he said well how about that dave you see you feel better now I said, "Yeah, yeah, rather, I, I, um, Harry it was, Harry Heenan. I said, well, I'll see you tonight when we, you know, we'll, we'll have a chat up, because we used to have a, a, a rum or something like that to drink, you know, the stuff, and, um, or um' cup of tea. And um, he, of course, was talking to me, and he dropped his stand gun, and it went off on its own and machine gunned him. And I have to live with that, really. It's hard, because I think about him... He was an only son and, and the mother and father wrote letters. They didn't, they never, the padre and the colonel and those sort of people would never let us know the letters and things that were written to the um, uh, to the regiment, they wanted to the, know where was his watch and whether Well, to be perfectly honest, what happened? When the, when the blokes got killed. We just used to share the stuff around. I mean, you see, don't forget, on the back of a Sherman, you didn't have any boxes or anything like that to protect anything. So we were continued being shot at. Don't forget, in a tank, you can't hide behind a tree or nip behind a house. Double quick. I mean, you're there, and so we were continually shot at. Um, when we were in action. I mean, we weren't continually shot at all the time because we weren't in action all the time. But the truth of the matter was that we hadn't got anything other than what we stood up in because our bedrolls and blankets and uniform and spare kit and everything else was continually being set on fire at the back of the tank, you see.
1: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
5: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: So how many tanks did, were you in that were destroyed?
4: I, uh, two, and I was in the third one, but I didn't lose that. I came out of it, but I came out of three tanks in that context. And so but the, I lost too, but that, that, some lost more than that, of course. Don't forget the Colonel, oh, Stanley Christopherson, came out of five tanks in the desert, five tanks in one day. What? Mm.
3: And you fought so after Normandy, you fought in part of the breakout. Yes, well, the we went through Falaise yeah. Gap, and then up northern France, and well, then and then.
4: Well, when we got to Doulon, um I overran a flying bomb site. I didn't know that it was a flying bomb, but we arrived, we, we arrived at a crossroads at Doulon. And um, actually, it was Harry Heenan who was, uh, because he, he didn't get killed until we were up in Nijmegen. On the way up there, you see, Harry was the lead tank, lead at uh, doing it, because he very often, a lot of the troop leaders like me, did do the leading, you see. Um, And he was in the lead of the whole thing. But we'd been hurtling up the road doing, you know, got cracking. Once we got cracking, we moved at pretty good speed. And we got over this hill and just as he did, whang, he got shot at from a gun that was on the crossroads that we were going over to to get into Toulon. And the fact was that this round came on the top of his tank and there was a huge gouge out of the top of his tank about 6 inches from his head and uh, so he backed up double quick and we all concertina up behind and I got out of my tank and I went over to John I said what the hell is going on why aren't we going ahead you see John Semkin is the major and I said well why aren't we going ahead he said well Barry's just been shot at by a gun down there you see so I said, well, wait a minute, look, I've got my Mac in my hands as we usually had. I said, well, look, if I turn and go over here at right angles to where we're going, and then I'll do a swoop because there's a road down there coming in on the crossroads. I'll get on that crossroads and then I'll come in and I'll get the bloke sideways on, you see, because he, 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 he was aiming up there and I'd be coming in like that. Um, a sort of swoop, you see, which is a thing we very seldom did, but we did it was done on occasion. Anyway, the point was that as we went, uh, he, John said, "Okay, if you want to do it, get on with it." You see, so right, follow me. I said to my troop, and the, we, the, we went off the four tanks, and we went down into a sort of thing where there was a big wall round and all the rest of it. I didn't know what it was and it was an old ancient sort of fort thing and in this thing there was like a ramp with holes in it you can see one actually if you go to duxford they've got one there and uh, there were a lot of little airplanes line there were two or three little airplane things and so I said to my gunner, right, I will put a round or two in them. So we sort of shot at these things. I mean, if we'd set one off, we'd have been blown to smithereens, of course. But we didn't know what they were. I just thought they were aeroplanes, you know. But no men about, no Germans. So anyway, we then go, and there's the road. So I said, well, no mind about that damn thing. But we'd overrun a flying bomb, a V1 flying bomb site. And I was ever so proud, because I wrote home, and I said... Done a flying bomb site, That's one that won't be dropping bombs on you. You yeah, know, that must
3: have been a good feeling. Yeah. Well, yeah,
4: I felt good about that. Well, and then you you went. But then we came into the thing, and somebody had already shot the gun, and so then we went through um, through Doulon and we didn't have much trouble. A, a few Germans actually. I mean, you know, all the time there was a bloke with a Panzerfaust or a Panzer Straight shooting at you and you had to be a bit sharp there were you see the big thing about being a troop leader or a proper troop commander was that you had to learn and how to deal with things you see john samkin saved our lives because he taught us how to fight the blinking germans think about it for a minute our guns just wouldn't knock the German tanks out head on at all. And if you made a slight mistake, you were a dead duck. Uh, Just as quick as that. I mean, there was no messing about. The Germans were very sharp folks. And so we had to be sharper. And all I can say is that John, you see, a lot of squadron leaders, we had one after he had a nervous breakdown and backed up at Garlinkirk because it got to him in the end, you realise that the top brass were ever so, ever so upset about sending the young boys to their deaths, literally. And it got to John, and he had a nervous breakdown. And uh, we had another chap in, who, uh, the squadron leader, uh, major, and I fell out with him because he didn't know his job, if you want the truth. And I said... You know, I I won't go into the detail of it, but I said, we definitely can't cope with you because, you know. Anyway, going back to the... uh, So
3: you fought through Nijmegen, obviously part of the Arnhem campaign, but then you fought in Germany as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah, of course. What was Germany like?
4: Oh, that was worse. It was, was it? Well, they got the ump, you see, because we were in their land, weren't we? Um... If you talk about Cleve, for instance, where that's near the rice wall, the whole regiment was in a line going up uh, up this road, and on the left-hand side, there were a number of houses, pairs, and then there was a gap where the garages should have been, hadn't been built, and then another house, you see. And suddenly, I was actually taken out, because they did take you out of a tank for perhaps two or three days or something like that just to give you a blow the padre or particularly the doctor um, would keep an eye on the young blokes and uh, say well he's had enough for a bit to get him out and let him have a, a little day or two off you see and um, so they were very very considerate like that uh, they, uh, And anyway we're in this line and I'm in a humber a little tiny humber Armoured car, and I'd got a driver, no arms or anything like that, no gun on it or anything. And um, the point was that uh, suddenly one of the tanks, our tanks, about four or five vehicles up in front of me, because I was the LO liaison officer to the colonel, in other words, I'd like a gopher, I was, but I didn't have to do anything, I just tagged behind him, you see. Anyway, the point was that um this tank suddenly erupted you see and suddenly there was another one behind us erupted and then another and the next minute i'm sitting there with the lid off this thing open a top it took a lead to lead, the, uh, the the hatch above was open and suddenly there was a whacking great bang And the thing rocks, you see. And the inside of the armed car was illuminated with a brilliant white light just for a flash of a second. And I said, well, what was that? I used a few old English words, actually. And I stuck my head up and I looked. And when I turned around and looked, I was looking straight down the barrel of a panther with an 88. And it was aiming at me, well fortunately what had happened was he couldn't quite depress his gun because I'd only got such a little vehicle, you see and when he fired the the white is the trace that's on the back end of a, an armoured um, a, 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 a AP armoured piercing uh, round which is a solid lump of steel weighing 22 and a half pounds which moves incidentally at faster than the speed of sound and that had whizzed over my head, and that was the white light as it went over, you see, the, 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 the phosphorus.
3: Well, are you alive? And to-
4: I was very lucky to uh, get away with it because then, having fired, he didn't waste any time. He backed up and he wanted to get off and have another go at another one. But can you imagine? That was a near squeak, wasn't it?
3: Are you alive today through good luck or because you were good at your job? Um, well they
4: missed a lot of times uh, but not all the time they didn't miss me, no Um, I would be say I would say in principle I'm alive today because John Samkin kept us, he thought about how to deal with them and he told us a system of dealing which I'll tell you about but the point was that you see most of the time the squadron leaders didn't think about it. They just said, all right, well, we've got to go there. So, righto, um, four troop, five troop, whatever it was, go there, you see. Well, John didn't do that. He thought, how are we going to do it, not lose the tanks? And he decided that he would get hold of us, the four of us, and he said, now, look, you must fire for about a quarter of an hour before you move. Brass the area up before you move Because when you're being shot at You cringe And so consequently That's what we did We would fire for about a quarter of an hour And then whilst the tanks were firing I would then let them know That I was moving my troop And then, because don't forget I had a troop section And we were very much on our own I mean it was my war That we fought that little bit um, and so, I, and there was no question. I mean, John would come over the air and tell us which way to go and things like that. But when it came to the actual, you know, dealing with the Germans and fighting them, it was the troop leaders who did it. You realise, not the colonels or the majors. But anyway, long and the short of it was that I would then advance with them, firing past me, and then I'd get up and in amongst the and then brass them up um, you know right close up get up to
3: close
4: them. yeah get in amongst them you see it was all a bit dicey
3: that's the biggest understatement I've ever heard <laughs> and now you've written a book
4: well we're being helped to write a book yes what's it going to be called I,
3: Tank Action it's called Tank Action yes and, uh, that like
4: will tell you quite a bit about it
3: well I'm looking forward to reading that and when were you, when were you demobbed after the war uh, well, I when the war was
4: over, I was still four months off being twenty-one, so they said, "Right, oh, you, you can go to Japan now and do the landing on Japan." And so I thought, "Well, I won't come back from that, but never mind, because we never expected to survive." You realise, I mean, you know, we. But if you might say to me, um, you know, were you afraid or anything like that? Well, the answer is no. And how did we stand it? Well, the answer was. We got numb to it. I liken the situation to when, you know when they made, well you wouldn't know because you're too young, but they made the M1, and I can remember people saying, Phew, I'm not going out that motorway, it's jolly dangerous, I'm not going on that, Literally. Well, now you don't think about going up the M1, do you? I mean, what's wrong with that? Well, that was the same, if you can appreciate what I'm getting at, that was the same sort of attitude that we adopted. We knew we were going to get killed, but actually I don't think it was going to be me. I think it would be the other bloke, really. Uh, But in principle, um, we got numbed to it. That was the real point. And um, it just accepted the situation and we lived by the day and all the rest of it. One of the big problems, of course, was that it went on for so long. If you look at the um, reason why the French have been kind to us and given us a medal, uh, is because I, they worked it out. I did 89 days of fighting in France. Not continuous, because we used to do, they tried to give us 10 days in action and 5 days out. But we didn't always get that at all. They move us on, you know. And um, but I mean, if you were a prisoner of war, I'm not decrying people who are prisoners of war or in concentration camps. But they, a lot of them, had a reasonable expectation they were going to wake up in the morning. We didn't. Don't forget, we have a number of people. And you, I can take you to a gravestones in Bayer, where the Royal Armoured Corps was the overall holding thing of the of the tanks and then you had the Royal Tank Regiment and the Nazio and the Derbyshire Yeomanry, and all the rest on in other words you you were in the Royal Armoured Corps and then you were sent off to an individual unit but when then you'd have a different cat badge you see but the point is the original one is on the gravestone of three chaps who we know in Bayeux who were in our tanks. Well, why have they got those original badges up? Well, the answer is because they were reinforcements who came in to take the place of fellows who were killed in the tank yesterday, and they got in the tank at say eight o'clock or nine o'clock in the morning, and by midday they were dead. For the simple reason that the the lorries that came up with fuel and ammo and cat badges and so on um, well they don 't come up until nighttime, so these boys hadn 't done a day 's fighting they were killed don 't forget a lot of people and they when we did this medal thing in the uh, uh, you know the presentation in the French embassy the other week um, a lot of the people. Um, I'd only had 25 minutes of war in France and that was their war, well can you imagine what it's like going day after day after day after day after month after month I mean we were absolutely knackered at the end of it
3: well all I can say is
4: it wasn't the end of it because we had to do Belgium, I mean we had a thing called Giel in Belgium which was horrendous and then we had Holland I did a talk to the Dutch. Um, they got me to go over there, and I did six talks in five days for them because it was their anniversary of liberation. But they made a terrific fuss of us, I must say.
3: Well, I'm not surprised. You deserve to have a fuss made out of you. And no, I don't. I just, oh, I'm just i
4: only one of thousands, don't forget. And, and how important was I? tiny? I only had a little front to deal with, don't forget.
3: Well... David, you've given us a sense of what it was like. Good luck with the launch of the book. And thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been a great honor.
4: Thank you very much, sir.
1: That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code MOM.
5: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart.